I want to open up with a question. How do you picture God? A lot of people have different views of God, different pictures. For some people, it's kind of like the goofy old man in the sky. For other people, it's uh, Morgan Freeman. Have you guys ever seen a movie where Morgan Freeman played God? Yeah, uh, Bruce Almighty, Evan Almighty. I kind of hope that when I get to heaven, God looks like Morgan Freeman and talks like him. That'd be so cool. But, you know, some people think of him as just in a cartoony way. You know, he's this happy-go-lucky God who flies around on a cloud. He's this old man who just is eternally smiling and just very chill. Uh, And he is very tolerant towards sin. You know, he looks at sin, and he's like, oh, you know, that's fine, that's all right, you know, just go on and do what you want. I'll never get mad because I'm God and I'm gracious and loving. But here's the reality. If this is our view of God, then we really have no idea of what the true character of God actually is. Listen, one of the main points I want you to get in your head today is that there are things that do anger God. There are things that actually make God upset, and they always involve sin. Now, right now, we are in the book of Judges, and here's the background. Chapter 2, I know we've been in chapter 1 and 2 for a long time. I promise after this week, we're going to start moving faster, so we're going to try to do one chapter a week. Um, But here's the background. Moses has died. Joshua has died. And the result is the people of Israel have They've begun to forsake God. No leaders have stepped up to lead. No one was obeying God's commandments. What were those commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments. Keep the Ten Commandments. But also, be holy. Be set apart. What does holiness mean? It means to be set apart for a purpose. Um, And then the mission of God, which was to put Israel in this land and have them wipe out their enemies. Why? Because God is a horrible, violent monster who likes just to wipe people out? No, because God had a plan to save the world through Jesus being born in Israel. And so this land needed to be cleared out of anyone whose vision wasn't lined up with God's plan. They needed to make the land holy and set apart for God's purposes and his plans. But did they do it? No, they completely failed. And like Bobby showed us last week, when you You let your sin and failures in your life grow. They end up becoming like weeds that are super tall and overtake your entire life. The result of Israel not driving out these people God told them to drive out was, one, they ended up living with them. They said, you know, uh, driving out these people, that's pretty hard. Getting rid of this sin in the land, that's, that's difficult. That takes a lot of effort. Let's just live with them. And what ends up happening? They become friends with them. And then they end up worshiping their false gods and engaging in all sorts of sin. Now, this makes God angry. And we read in last week, or the last time we were together and we went through the first part of Judges 2, we see that God was angry towards Israel. Now, a lot of times when we read the Old Testament, we tend to downplay God's anger. We tend to downplay the consequences of sin. And a lot of us can think of God as this uptight you know, just angry father. You know, he just, he gets so uptight. He gets so bent out of shape. And we almost think of Jesus as kind of like the liberal son coming home from college saying, hey, dad, chill out with that anger stuff. You know, I've got this great new idea called grace. Here's the reality, though. God and Jesus are the same. So when God is angry, Jesus is actually angry, and the Holy Spirit is angry. It's very important that we don't miss the harsh reality. God hates sin, and it makes him angry. Let that sink in for a second. 
God hates your sin. God hates my sin. It is a essential part of his character. Sin is his enemy. It represents everything he's fought against for our entire existence. Now I want to go into verse 13 in chapter 2. And we're going to see the story of Israel continued. And we're going to see what happens when Israel awakens the anger of the Lord. So turn to verse 13. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Now you might read that, and you might think, whoa, it says God's anger was hot against the people of Israel. So think like blood boiling, like he is furious. Now you might look at a verse like that, and if you're like me, because we've grown up in kind of this Western society where we focus a lot on the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, you might look at a verse like this and be like, oh man, God, I mean, why are you being so mean? Why are you getting so bent out of shape, God? It's just sin. What's the big deal? But I think Tim Keller hits the nail on the head when he writes in his book, Judges for You. He says in verses 12, 13, and 14, God is angry when people in his world set other things in his place. His anger is not against a particular people, group, or type. Here he is angry with his own people. Anger is not always the opposite of love. Did you catch that? Anger is not always the opposite of love. It can be the outworking of love. God here is like a parent whose child has completely rejected them. Now, how many of you guys have little brothers and sisters? Yeah? How many of you guys have had little brothers and sisters who have done horrible things to you? Yeah? Yeah, okay. Now, imagine you're a parent. I know you guys are far away from being parents, but just imagine you're a parent and you love, like how many of you guys have ever like, like had a younger sibling or maybe a kid in children's ministry and you're just like, I love this kid. Or maybe you have friends with little kids and you're just like, man, I love these kids. Anybody ever feel that way? Yeah, I just, I've grown up around little kids my whole life. I had little sisters and I worked in children's ministry. So I've seen kids where I'm just like, oh man, these kids are so cool. Like I know that kid's like three, but I wanna be him when I grow up. That's how I feel sometimes. And, and imagine that, you know, you've got this little kid and, and you just think they're so sweet and you love them so much and you go up to them and you start talking to them and you're like, hey, let's talk about Jesus. And they snort and hawk a giant loogie right in your face. Just right, like, would you, now, would you be angry? Raise your hand if you'd be angry. Yeah, you would absolutely be angry. Is anger appropriate in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. Why is it appropriate? Well, because it's a violation of the love relationship you have with someone. When someone hurts you, when your little kid or little brother spits a loogie in your face, that is a violation of the brother-sister, brother-brother relationship, of the mother-father, uh, son-daughter relationship. When we do these things that hurt one another, it's a violation. And so when, if a kid did that to me, I wouldn't be like, I hate you. I will now kill you. Like, I would not do that. But I would be upset. And I'd be like, hey, you need punishment. You need punishment because you have done some wrong things spitting in my face like this. When we violate our relationship with God, we need to realize when we read these passages in the Bible, Yahweh, our God, doesn't want to destroy. 
That's not his heart. His heart is never to destroy. It's always to restore what is broken. So when you see that God is angry in the scriptures, don't think that he's just some God with a short fuse. The Bible constantly talks about the patience and forgiveness of Yahweh. But we need to know that he is to be taken seriously. And he has feelings. A lot of times we think of God not as a person, but we think of him as like a robot, almost like a formula. You know, if I do these things, then God blesses me this way. If I sin, then I pray and God forgives me and everything's okay. And we don't think of God in the same way where if you hurt your friend or if you gossiped about your, your sister or if you slapped your brother, you, they would be hurt. They would have hurt feelings. Why? Because they're a person. And when we sin, we often don't think of God as a person. He's just a formula. So, oh, I sin. What do I do? I, I pray and everything's okay. And we forget the reality that God has feelings and he loves you. And when he sees you hurting yourself and sinning and going after things that are no good for you, it hurts his heart. And he is stirred up to anger because he hates seeing the sin that is destroying your life. It's an anger out of love. It's easy to just look past the anger of God, but I think Professor Thomas Christensen says a very on-point thing. He says, we must pay attention to what the Old Testament says, for when we ignore the God whom we worship, when we ignore it, we ignore the God whom we worship and call Father. Now, last time we were here, we talked about something called the Shema. How many of you guys remember the Shema? Anybody? Anybody? Like two people? Okay, cool. So we'll cover it again really quick. So this Shema was a, it was basically like the Hebrew version of John 3.16. How many of you guys know John 3.16 by heart? Yeah? Okay. Like, yeah, we all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's as common as, you know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. The Shema was the Israelites' John 3.16. They knew it by heart. And here's what it was. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one, and as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This would have been tattooed on the heart of every Hebrew child. They would know it. They would know it by heart. Now, the word Shema in Hebrew, is it's the word hear or listen. And we are called to listen to God's commands and his heart. That's what the Shema is. It's a call to listen. Hey, listen up. Listen to God's heart. Listen to his plans. Listen to who he is. Is he speaking right now? Are you listening right now? Or are you just on your phones? Are you, like 20 people looked up, huh, what? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, are you listening to God's heart for you? Now, is there a difference between hearing and listening? Anybody? I'll, I'll, I'll do a demonstration. Um, Kara, can you come up here really quick? Super quick, okay? I promise this will be painless for you, okay? Okay, so Kara is up here. Now, no, stand back a little bit. Yeah, okay, it's perfect. Okay, now I want you guys to give me a directive. I want you guys to tell me to do something. I want you guys to tell me to give Kara a high five, okay? You're like, what is going on? This is weird. Just track with me, okay? I'm gonna count to three, I'm going to turn the mic to you, and I want you guys to all say, give Kara, or no, say, Aaron, give Kara a high five, okay? One, two, three. Okay, you can go sit back down. Now, did I listen to you? Well, no, technically I did. I listened to the sound waves coming from your voices, and they passed through my ears, but did I do what you said 
to do. There is a difference between hearing and listening. To listen to God, to really listen, is to not just show up on Sunday and say, okay, I sat through Aaron talking for 45 minutes. To listen to God, to shema him, is to obey him. And this is really what Jesus says. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, I feel so bad. Kara, we will high five afterwards. I feel like I, we were denied a high five right then. See, see what happens when you don't obey? You miss out on great things like high fives. We are called to listen and obey to God. Now, the Bible Project had a really cool video they put out on Deuteronomy, and they hit this topic again. And because this topic is so important to me, to listen and to love. How do you love God? By listening to him. Listen and love. Listen and love. Because this is so key, I'm going to show you guys a video because I want you guys to get it. So this is a quick video, quick portion of the Bible Project on listening and loving, on how to practice the Shema. All right, now notice these key words in the Shema, listen and love. The word listen in Hebrew means more than just let sound waves come into your ears. It includes the idea of responding to what you hear. So for Israel, this means responding to God's grace by obeying the laws of the covenant. And then listen is always followed by love. Yeah, so love is the true motivation for obeying the laws. Israel won't obey without love, and they don't truly love if they don't obey. So there's this tight connection between loving and listening that runs through the entire book. And so Moses tells them that if they do listen and love, they will fulfill their original calling as the family of Abraham to show all of the nations the wisdom and justice of God and so become a blessing to them. The second big section in Deuteronomy is a large block of laws and commands. And this is where the book gets its name. Deuteronomy means a second law. And it's because many of these laws we've heard before. In fact, in the first line of the book, we're told that Moses is here explaining or clarifying the laws. So he's repeating and expanding on the laws, making them relevant to this new generation. There's laws about how Israel's to worship God, laws about their leadership structure, laws about social justice, and then some more laws about their worship. Now, after all of the laws, Moses warns Israel of the consequences of their obedience or disobedience, or in his words, the blessing or the curse. If they listen and love, they will experience blessing and abundance in the land. And if they don't, there's going to be famine and plagues, and they'll be forced off their land into exile. And that brings us to the final section of his speech. Yeah, here Moses says, I set before you today life or death, blessing or curse. So choose life. But then things get really interesting because after 40 years with these people, Moses knows they're not going to obey. And so he predicts their failure and even their future exile from the promised land. And he focuses on what he thinks is the true source of the problem, that they have hard and selfish hearts. It's as if Israel is incapable of truly loving God in a way that brings about obedience. So we see here Moses... A couple books ago, in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, he's looking at the Israelites and he's saying, you need to listen to God. Because if you don't listen to him, you're truly not loving him. And then he talks about consequences. He says, if you listen to God, if you love him by listening, that means not just hearing, but obeying, then you will be blessed and it's not necessarily saying that, you know, oh, for every time you obey, you know, God's going to give you money or he's going to give you the car that you want. But it's talking about a lifestyle of blessing. You're living underneath God's protection, his care, his influence, his direction. But if you choose to listen but not obey, 
to hear but not do the word, then you will live a lifestyle of curse. And once again, this doesn't mean that for every time you sin, God is specifically cursing you. No, we bring the sin, the curse of sin on ourselves. It doesn't take much. God doesn't have to go out of his way to make your life miserable. If you're living in sin, you do it to yourself. You live in your sin. And yes, it's pleasurable for a time, but as most of us know, it doesn't last. And it leads to pain and suffering in our life. And that's where Israel is at this point in the book of Judges. They haven't listened, and so they are suffering. God is angry because he loves them, and he wants them to walk in his ways, but they're choosing rebellion. Let's turn to verse 15, and let's see what happens next in the story. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were greatly distressed. The hand of the Lord was against them. That's hardcore. Like, think about that. How bummed would you be? <laughs> Imagine you open up your Bible one morning. Um, I'm just going to use a random person. D- Dylan, I'll use you as an example. Let's say Dylan opens up his Bible one morning, and, you know, he turns to, like, his favorite verse, and it's not there. It's missing. And he's like, what the heck? Like, the page is blank except one verse. And he looks at it, and it goes, the, the verse just reads, Dylan, the hand of the Lord is against you. What would you do? I would... I would cry a single tear. Just, just, yeah, I'd be so bummed. That's what's happening. The hand of the Lord is against them. Now, have you ever felt that way? Like the hand of the Lord was against you? I remember one of the worst moments of my life. It was at a school spring formal. How many of you guys have ever been to a spring formal? Okay. So I was the guy who never could get a date to the Calvary Christian spring formal. So I thought, just because I can't get a date doesn't mean I can't have fun. So, so I, it was kind of like this 1920s kind of vibe, you know, we were on this boat. And um, I went to the ASB and I was like, hey guys, I want to put on a show. Now I was a theater kid. I loved performing. I, I loved being in plays. So I'm thinking, you know, I can get people to like me by being a theater actor. And I had this idea for what's called a vaudeville show. Does anyone know what a vaudeville show is? No, you're like, what the heck is that? So a vaudeville show is basically, it's like, a, it's like a mixture of like a comedy routine with like a little bit of like dance number and then um, some singing, you know? So I put on this like little top hat and I put on this little Charlie Chaplin like fake mustache and I put on a suit and I had, just imagine me, but with like a little top hat with like curly, like Stefan's hair, just coming out of the side. Yeah, just like that. So, you know, I look like, this little Charlie Chaplin, puffy-haired dude. And I get up in front of the whole school at the spring formal, and I'm performing. And I'm looking out, and, like, no one's really watching. So I'm like, man, I got to up my game. So I'm singing louder, you know. I'm singing this song called Danny Boy, which was like, oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are called. Like, just, it's stupid. I was singing this stupid song about pipes. No one was paying attention. Um... And I really got into the act. I was like, you know, I'm not going to look at the audience. I'm just going to do my best. And if I do my best, then they'll notice me and I'll be a star. So I was performing and and I got to the point, I I sang my last song and I had my friend Jeremy Reese come up and this was the very end. It was my grand finale in the tradition of all the old 1920s actors. I decided I would end the act by getting hit in the face with a cream pie. So as I'm singing the final number, I get to the high note, the pie goes in my face, and I'm thinking, 
I cannot wait. The applause is going to roll in. Everyone's going to think this is amazing. It's totally vaudeville and awesome. I just got hit in the face with a pie. And I didn't hear anything. Like, no claps, no cheers. I wiped the whipped cream off my eyes, and everyone was just at their tables, pleasantly having conversations with one another, not even noticing the man who just got hit in the face with a pie for them. So I ended up walking home with pie all over my suit. I did not think that through of how I was going to get clean. I didn't bring a spare change of clothes. So I was like walking home, I, you know, not in the rain, but it felt like it, with like the sad Charlie Brown music. And I was just like, God, why do you hate me? Why is your hand against me? That's how it felt. But the reality is God's hand wasn't against me. I was just a loser. I was just lame. <laughs> anyway, though. <laughs> Sometimes you might feel like God's hand is against you. You might look in your life and feel like, man, all these things are going wrong. But you know what? In this verse, we see the reality that it is a possibility for God to be against somebody. God is against the Israelites. Now, why would God go against his own people? Why would he at every turn block them? Why would he stop them? Well, the reality is they did it to themselves. They put themselves in that position through their sin. Jesus says this, anyone who isn't with me is against me, and anyone who isn't working for me is actually working opposite of me. Now remember the warning that Moses gives them, the blessing or the curse, choose life or choose death. The reality of the curse of sin is it's not so much God attacks us for our sin, but he lifts his hand of protection. Do you realize that? As a Christian, you can be in a place where God lifts his hand of protection from you. That doesn't mean that you can go to hell, but that means that the enemy is constantly trying to attack you, and a lot of times he doesn't succeed is because God is constantly blocking him. If you give yourself to sin as a Christian, God can say, you know what? I'll give you what you want. I'll remove my hand of protection, and you'll see just how destructive sin can be. And he's actually being a good father for doing this. For an example, imagine, you know, a father keeps his son from dating, okay? A father says, son, I don't want you to date. And he's thinking, the father's like, you know, I don't want my son to have sex before marriage. I don't want him to fool around with this girl. So, son, you can't date. But then as the son gets older, the son keeps rebelling. He keeps sneaking out the window. He keeps going against what his dad said. He keeps dating this girl. And eventually, the dad said, listen, I won't stop you. I won't force you not to sin but I'm kicking you out of the house. I'm removing my hand of protection from you. Now, if the result of this is the son goes, sweet, I can do whatever my, what I want, and he ends up in this relationship, and all of a sudden he gets the girl pregnant, or he ends up with an STD, did the dad cause that? No. He lifted his hand of protection because the son was pushing against it. And so he let the son have what he wants, and the son realizes what a mistake he made. God gives us what we want. And it can sound awesome. It sounded awesome to the Israelites. Oh, sweet, God's giving me what I want. Now I can serve false gods. I can serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But what's the result? Slavery. By who? It's the Canaanites. The very people who own those gods, now Israelite is, or the Israelites are slaves to the people who actually worship those gods. It's the great irony. Sin leads to slavery. What you worship ends up being what enslaves you. It's so hard sometimes when I see people giving into sin in their life and saying, this is just who I am now. This sin just, the, don't try to stop me. Don't try to get in my way. This sin is who I am now. That's not the truth. It's not who we're made to be. Our sinful self is not our true self. 
We're all waiting for God to show us who we could be through him. Let's turn to verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. In verse 16, we see a gnarly image. It says in actually verse 17, they would not listen to God. God raises up these judges to deliver them. They didn't listen, but they played the harlot with other gods. Now, harlot is not a word that we use that often, but what it basically means, it's this image of saying, Israel, you're cheating on me. You're sleeping around with other people. You're getting with prostitutes. It's basically what they're saying. Israel, you're prostituting yourself to other gods. Keller says this is a striking, provocative image. Prostitutes then and often now too are people whose lives are out of control, who are desperate and who are giving themselves without getting any real pleasure or love in return. The use of the word prostitute here tells us that when we serve an idol, we come into an intense relationship with it, within which it uses us and does not truly care for us. We, can be, we become completely vulnerable to it, little more than a slave. And this is what Satan's forces love to do. They love to enslave us to idols. Now, think about the demonic nature, okay? I'm not talking about demonic as in like, you know, the 90s where it's like, everything's demonic. Don't watch Power Rangers because they're probably demonic. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, You guys weren't around in the 90s. It was a weird time. Everything was, like, according to our moms in the 90s, everything was demon-possessed. Anyway, though, demons are real, and they are doing things in the world. What's their history? What is the history of demons? Well, they were with God in heaven. They were angels, but they rebelled because their leader, Lucifer, thought he could be a better God than our God, Yahweh. And so God banishes them from heaven. And so these demons know that their end is hell. They know that they are headed for hell, but their mission is to take as many people with them as they can. And listen, Christians, if you're here today and you're saved, The the enemy can't drag you off to hell with him, but he can make your life here on earth a living hell. They can waste your potential to do great things for God, and you can find yourself as a Christian worshiping Jesus with one foot and serving idols with the other, prostitution without pleasure, feelings of guilt and shame and bondage. And this is one of the main reasons Jesus said he came to set captives free. Think about it. It's insane. Before we came to know Christ, and some of you guys are like, I was born in a Christian family, so this doesn't apply. No, it actually does. Because go back to your family, your family history before they knew Christ. For us personally and for our families, before we knew Christ, we were in the chains of sin. And the crazy thing is, for us as Christians, Jesus says, I already unlocked the chains. You just need to walk out of them. Can you walk out of your chains without Christ? No, but with Christ, you absolutely can. So it's insane that so many Christians get saved and freed and walk out of those chains, but then a month later, they say, oh, actually, sin was kind of fun, and they go and they put the chains back on themselves. And Jesus would say to you here today, if you're living as a Christian, but you're constantly sinning, just constantly, whether it's every day or every week, just giving into temptation, giving into these things that you know are wrong, Jesus would say, I already unlocked those chains. Why are you going and putting them back on yourself? Why are you doing this to yourself? The Bible says that we as humans are often like a dog that 
pukes up a pile of puke and then walks over to it a day later and goes, that smells good, and eats it. That's literally in the Bible, and it's disgusting. But it's what we do with our sin. God frees us, and we say, oh, sweet, I got deliverance. You go to a camp, you repent, you say, this is awesome. And then a month later, oh, you know what? That sin actually was pretty cool. And then all of a sudden, you're right back in your own bondage. Jesus would say, hey, those chains aren't locked. The chains aren't locked. All you have to do is step out of them. It's your choice, though. God can't force you not to sin. And this gives us good insight as to why God is angry with sin. God sees all sin and idolatry as adultery. He doesn't merely want us to know him and obey him the way like a citizen obeys a king. He wants us to know him and love him the way a husband loves a wife, the way a boyfriend loves a girlfriend. For some of you guys, right now you're in high school and some of you guys are dating, most of you guys are single, and like that ideal of that relationship, that boyfriend-girlfriend relationship is like the highest level of cool, awesome thing you can imagine. You're like, oh my gosh, that'd be so cool to have that one day. Maybe you're looking at other people in the group and you're like jealous of their relationship and you're like, oh, maybe that could be me and that girl someday, but she'd never notice me. Like we, we, we think towards these things and God actually invented those relationships. Like, like dating is not something that high school kids invented. That's like secret that no one else knows about. Like It's okay. Like those feelings are awesome. Like God made them for a reason because they reflect the way that we're supposed to feel about him. So for those of you guys who are dating or want to date one day, the way that you feel towards your boyfriend or girlfriend, the passion that you feel towards them, the love that you feel towards them, God created that relationship as a gift for you to show you the way that he feels about you and the way that he wants you to feel about him. And just like our boyfriends and girlfriends or our husbands and wives in the future would be so hurt if we cheated on them. God is hurt and angry and upset when we cheat on him in a spiritual sense, when we turn to idols and we worship them. Now notice in verse 16, it says, oh, I don't have the verse up. In verse 16, it says, they turned quickly from the ways in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. How many of you guys have Christian parents? Christian parents, yeah? Okay, do you ever feel like it's hard to measure up to their faith? Anybody ever feel that way? You've got parents who are just awesome Christians and you're like, oh man, like I feel that way with my parents being pastors. Or how many of you guys have ever had someone older in your life maybe where you look at their faith and you're like, man, I could never be as strong in the faith as them. Have you ever felt that way? Anybody? Yeah. Okay, me absolutely. I have felt that way too. My dad is up every morning at five reading his Bible. He's like super Christian and I've always felt like, man, I can't measure up to my dad. And so a verse like that can be scary for me because I see there was this, generation that couldn't live up to the generation above them. They didn't have the same faith. They didn't have the same walk. And it can be sherry, or sherry. It can be scary because I can say, shoot, if I can't even do Christianity the way my parents do, I don't stand a chance. I could end up just like this generation falling away. And it's discouraging. Listen, listen, listen. Have you ever considered that Jesus has not asked you to be your parents? Have you ever considered that Jesus has never asked you to be the older people in your life? Some of you guys need to hear this because you have a pressure on you to live up and maybe it's a pressure you put on yourself or a pressure other people put on you. But listen, listen, if you're on your phone, if you're messing around, just please tune in right now for a second because I think this is something that we need to hear. 
Jesus would say to you, listen, you're not called to be your mom and dad. You're not called to be the counselors. You're called to be you and follow me as you. You're called to follow Jesus as yourself. We need to hear this because a lot of pressure on our generation is to be like those who came before us. One of the most annoying examples I see is the whole debate about the iPhone Bible. Have you guys ever like, seen people make a big deal about this? I see pastors make a big deal sometimes about young Christians having not a physical Bible in their hand at church. You know, they'll look out and they'll say, you know, oh man, oh, he's so holy because he's got a physical Bible. Hold it up, Trevor, like Mufasa. Just, oh, and then... Those of you guys who are on your phones, it's like, well, we don't even know if they're really on their Bible app. They could be on Snapchat at the same time. We just don't know. We just, (laughs) some of you guys are like, I actually am on Snapchat right now. You shouldn't be. (laughs) But here's the thing. I I see some pastors um, make a big deal. I actually know some youth pastors who are a little bit more old school than me. They don't really like to embrace technology. Um, So they're not like Amish, but what they do is they have a basket at the door. And when people come through the door, they collect everyone's phones. It's like, no phones, put them in the basket. Jesus didn't have a phone, so neither should you. Um, that's kind of how they act. And I, have you guys ever heard the classic line that pastors say where they're like, uh, you know, and now turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter six. And then like, there'll be some people like turning in their physical Bibles and they'll say, oh Lord, I just love the sound of pages turning. Have you guys ever heard that? Is it just me? Is it just like an older millennial thing that people hear? Yeah, so I hear that. You know, I love the sound of pages turning and all the old people in the room laugh. And basically the unspoken message they're sending to everyone my age and your age in the room is real Christians carry physical Bibles around 24-7. And I might say like, well, but I've got five different Bibles and 20 commentaries on my iPad that I read every day. And they're like, but you can't hear the pages turning. You can't hear the page. It's, it's honestly kind of silly. Because think about it, it's hard to adapt, it's hard not to look down on new things, but think about it, I mean, I understand the reasoning behind it. It's honestly, it's a nostalgic thing. What sounds better? What sounds better? And grandpa handed me his 50 pound onion skin leather bound Bible or grandpa passed me the iPad, which sounds more spiritual? The first one with the Bible. But you realize that the way that our generation is, I mean, that's what we're going to be doing when we're old. We're going to be passing iPads to our grandkids with Bible verses. Our grandkids will be saying things like, I just remember when Grandpa forwarded me an Instagram repost and the hashtag just blessed my soul so much. That's what our grandkids are going to be saying. Because honestly, culture is always changing. And for the person who says, I love the sound of pages turning, my gentle rebuke is the person before them would have said, books? <laughs> books? That's a younger generational thing. I love the sound of scrolls unfolding. A real Christian has scrolls. Or the person before them would have been like, I just love the sound of tablets chiseling. You know, not iPads, but literal stone tablets. Look, the point I'm trying to make is obsessing over doing things exactly the same way as the older generation will get you nowhere. It's the the point is not how you obey God. The point is that you obey him. It's not about the method of how you obey God. It's that you obey him. And I hope that's freeing for some of you to hear. Because for you, you have to ask, what does God say? What did God command? Well, what does he say? He says, read my word. Steady the scriptures. He says, pray and have a relationship with me. He says, preach the gospel. Keep the covenant. Follow Jesus. But listen, how you do this might look differently than your mom and dad. But what matters is that you do it. 
And some of you guys are, you might be like me. You, maybe for the first part of your Christian life, you got tripped up and you thought you weren't a real Christian because you couldn't do things the same way your mom and dad did. But God is not calling you to be just like them. He's saying, hey, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. And I finally in my life moved past this desire to experience God in the same way people before me did. And I've moved to focusing on just experiencing him, which is so much more freeing. It's such a different in focus. It's not pleasing man. I've got to do this because this is exactly how dad did it. But it's saying, no, I just want to read my Bible because I want to talk to God and I want to hear from him. I remember there was an old guy here in the church who um, we were talking about devotions, you know, and he's like, oh man, I get up every morning four in the morning to do my devotions. And I thought, man, that's awesome. That's so cool. That's awesome. And I was like, you know what? I am not a morning person. I have tried getting up in the morning. I've tried reading my Bible at four and my eyes literally like won't even open. Like I'm looking at the page and I'm like, I don't even know what I read. So I said, you know, what I started doing, at first I was bummed that I couldn't get up in the morning and I thought, you know, I'm a weak-willed Christian. I'm not a good Christian because I can't get up like these other guys. But then I was praying, God spoke to me and he's like, hey, read your Bible at night. Read your Bible before bed. Pray before bed. Have that time with Jesus before bed. And this older guy I was talking to was like, you can't have your devotions at night. And I was like, why not? He's like, well, Jesus got up in the morning. The scriptures say Jesus got up in the morning, so we should get up in the morning. And I was like, there's nowhere in the Bible that commands us to get up in the morning. We're just commanded to spend time with God. And he was like, well, you know, if you don't read your devotions in the morning, you're like a soldier going out into battle without putting on your armor. And I was like, what if I put on the armor the night before and I sleep in it and then I get up and I'm more prepared than you when I wake up? And he was like, oh. Anyway, (laughs) I didn't really say it that, I did not really say it that sassily. Um, That's just like, you know how sometimes you think of how you wanted to say it, but really I was just like, yeah, you're probably right, but I think this is, anyway. (laughs) Here's the reality. God wants us to experience him. And so for you, experience God in the way that you can in the way that he leads you. For some of you, it might be reading a physical Bible. Maybe for you, that just connects you to God, and when you feel the physical Bible in your hand, it's that, hey, more power to you. That's awesome. For some of you guys, though, it might be an app on your iPad. It might be an app on your phone, a devotion app, a a book on your phone. It's not less spiritual. It's the word of God. Literally, if in 50 years, they tattoo the word of God onto people's eyelids, so every time you close your eyes, you can read it through a digital screen on the back of your eyelids, that's not gonna be less spiritual. I hope it doesn't get to that, though, because that would be really weird. Anyway, whether it's YouTube, there's so many awesome YouTube videos that talk about God, Instagram accounts, um, conversations with people that you meet. Listen, trying to experience God more and more without legalistic ideas of what that looks like is the way to go. Because once you get to that point, you, stu- you truly start to become free. And he who is free in Christ is free indeed. Let's continue on to verse 18. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, The Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. So we are finally getting to the actual judges in the book 
of Judges. We've kind of touched over a few. Next week, we're going to be going over a guy named Ehud, who is an amazing judge. But here's who the judges are. When you hear the word judge in the book of Judges, don't think like Judge Judy or like somebody with a robe and a wig and a gavel. Think more military commander put in place by God for a specific purpose and a specific, specific time. People would be under the bondage of these wicked people. They would cry out for deliverance, and God would raise up a deliverer, a special guy for a special time to deliver them. Now, notice it says that God took pity on them. God took pity on them. That is a huge contrast between true gods and false gods, because here's the reality. Whatever false gods you serve, and yes, in the old Bible days, people bow down to statues, but we worship false gods today. We bow down to the altars of money and greed, sex. We bow down to the, the, the altars of partying and relationships and, and, and physical relationships. We bow down to the altar of success and, and our goals for our future and stuff and, and wealth and all these things. We, we worship at these altars. Here's the reality. Those idols will only take from you. They will take and take and take, and they will never take pity on you. When you're in sin, your drug problem is not gonna take pity on you. When you are just at the end of your rope, just feeling left out, feeling hopeless, your porn addiction will not say, oh, let me help you in your time of need. They will only hurt you and take more from you. God is the complete opposite. He is a true God and he looks on us and he has pity. The enemy will never have pity on us. God will look on us and say, they are my children, and yes, even though I was angry at them and I punished them, my heart is compassion, and I want to rescue them from their sin. God's salvation has always been better because it's the true salvation. Now, we are gonna see what happens when people take their eyes off the deliverer. God sends a judge, The people look to him and say, free us, but then what happens? Let's go to verse 19. And it came to pass, when the judge was dead, that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, nor from their stubborn way. So the sin cycle is oppression Or no, sin. You bow down to sin, you worship sin. Next thing you know, sin is running your life. It's oppressing you, so then you cry out to God because you say, I can see how my sin is hurting me. You repent. God raises up a deliverer. In the book of Judges, it was these judges. In our time, it's Jesus. He's our deliverer, so he delivers us from our sin. So we go through a time of peace, but often what happens is when you're under a horrible time in your life, you're very much aware of how your sin is hurting you. You see the pain, you see the suffering, but when you need to be careful is when you're in that time of peace, that time where you're not struggling because the enemy loves to put a target on your back when you're in a time when you're not struggling and put a sin in your path where you look at it and you go, that looks nice, I wanna go after that. And the sin cycle starts all over again. Here's the crazy thing. In these verses, it tells us that this generation ended up doing worse sins than their father their father's generation, who had done many sins, this generation would now say, oh, we're better at sin than our dads. We're way better. 
And in the book of Judges, we're gonna see over and over again that the rebellion becomes worse with every chapter. The oppression becomes heavier with every chapter. The repentance becomes less heartfelt. People are less likely to show real repentance and it's more just token repentance, just, oh, you know, I guess I'm sorry that I sinned, so I'll come to church on Sunday and then God will forgive me. It's less heartfelt and the judges themselves become more flawed and the salvation and revivals they bring become weaker. This is a reminder that we need something better than a human judge, something with more permanence than a leader who dies, something that can deliver the soul as well from the body. And we will not find that rescuer in the book of Judges. We will only find it in the person of Jesus Christ. So this new generation bows down to false gods. And to bow down to false gods was to embrace the norm of the culture. We did a series on Wednesday nights called The New Norm the new normal. And it was all about how sin is very much the new normal in our generation. To sleep around before you're married, or even not to sleep around, but to push the line as hard as possible, to not go all the way, but to get up as close as you can to it. That is so normal in our culture. It's very normal. There was once a time in our country and even the world where that was thought of like, oh man, we don't go there. We don't touch that. But nowadays, I mean, I'm sure you guys have many friends who you know are very open about what they do. For our culture to do drugs is such a norm. To abuse alcohol is such a norm. It is very much the culture to bow down to these idols. I once read a study recently that shows that um, about 80% of teenagers openly admit when taking an anonymous survey, they openly admit that they lie to their parents constantly just telling their parents what they want to hear, not revealing what's really going on in their heart, not revealing their true plans, their true motives, sneaking around behind their parents' back, whether it's physically out the window or whether it's I'm texting this person and my parents probably wouldn't want me to, what they don't know doesn't hurt them. That is such a cultural norm, and it's idolatry. And the common view of the time was we can just have lots of gods, In the book of Judges, they had tons of gods. There was the food god. They pray to the food god, he gives you food. Pray to the weather god, you get good weather. You pray to the war god, oh, you win in war. The love god, the sex god, the music god, and more and more and more. And the idea was, I worship these gods and they give me my needs. But the best part about it for these ancient Semitic cultures was, oh my gosh, (laughs) I don't know what that was. That's why you always put your phone on silent before you teach a message, pro tip. Anyway, um, the best part about having all these gods to worship was none of those gods demanded to be Lord over their life. So if you're praying to the sex god, is the sex god's like, hey, I'll give you what you want and you don't have to really give me anything in return. You pray to the food god, the weather god. You know, none of these gods were like, the weather god wasn't like, you will worship me and me alone. I demand lordship over your life. So really what it was is it became a mix and match religion. It was like, gotta catch them all, you know? Pokemon. Remember how Pokemon Go was cool for like a week? Um, does anyone still? Okay, so Stefan still plays it. Um, but that was the mentality. It was like, get all these gods in your life, all these different things, all this stuff, and worship it. And that sounds great, but it's honestly our version of idolatry today. Because we worship what we want, because what we want makes us feel good, and we feel like it gives us what we need. But in reality, we don't really have a god. If you're worshiping anything besides God, the only God that you've made is yourself. You've put yourself in the place of God. You've said, I am God, just like Satan did. We say this all the time. We don't say it with words. None of us say, it's, it's like, 
It's kind of like, um, I'm trying to think of like a picture for it. So like none of you would ever walk up to someone and say, I just feasted on the flesh of dead birds. Like if you just got back from KFC, you wouldn't say that, but that's technically what happened. But we don't use those words. In the same way, we would never be like, I am God. I think I am God. I worship myself. We don't say that, but we do it. Because we, we're technically saying, I can have as many gods as I want, but I'm in control. I can have as many idols as I want, but I'm in control. That's not true. It's tragic because the promised land was meant to become a place of worship for the Lord alone. It became the land of not worship of God alone. It became the worship of God plus. That's where everyone was. It was God plus. God plus porn. God plus drinking. God plus smoking weed. God plus getting physical with my girlfriend. God plus pursuing success at all costs. God plus money. Is that you? You're here today and you're worshiping God because it's Sunday. But the rest of the week, what other gods are you bowing down to? What are you giving yourself to? We pray and we say, God, your Lord. But the question is, is he really? We don't worship statues, but we all have idols. Now, if you want to know what is an idol in your life, I want to know, what's an idol in my life? Ask these questions and they will help you identify what an idol is. One, am I willing like, so hold, hold out, not literally hold out your hand, but in your mind's eye, you know, hold out your hand and picture in your hand whatever it is that you love most, whatever it is you're passionate about most. Now look at that thing, imagine it, and ask the question, am I willing to do whatever God says to do about this thing? If your answer is no, then that is an idol in your life. And it's not something that you have, it's something that has you. You have that thing, that idol. And the question would be, am I willing to accept what God says on this thing? And if your hand is closed around it, tight gripped, and you're like, no matter what God says, this plan is not changing. This relationship is not changing. This goal is not going away. This addiction will not be broken because it is what I want. It's an idol and God hates it. Now, don't get me wrong. If it's a person, God doesn't hate that person. You know, if it's a job, it's not like God hates that job. If it's a career or, you know, a a hobby or a goal, like God doesn't hate that thing, but he hates that you've allowed it to become your God. And he wants to dethrone it. But will you let him? One of my favorite quotes by A.W. Tozer is there is a cross and a throne in every heart. And if you do not get off the throne and let Jesus get on it, then he cannot be king of your heart. We need to get off the throne and put ourselves our flesh on the cross. Crucify our wants and our desires. Crucify our sin and let Jesus come off the cross and take the seat of the throne in our heart. Now just in the next three or four minutes, we're just gonna finish this up. 
We're going to go from verse 20 to 23, and then we'll be done with the chapter. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. dramatic but it it is dramatic and it is serious did you catch what happened God told Israel to drive these nations out Israel said nah you deal with it God and God said no I'm not going to deal with it either you deal with it or I'm leaving it there and that can happen in our life God says to you hey you need to turn to me repent and overcome this sin you need to surrender to me and so many of you just like i've done in my life in the past you think well i said a prayer so now god's obligated to free me of my sin i went to god and said god please help me never to be prideful god please help me never to lust god please help me never to lie we pray these things and we just expect god to take care of it god has called you into a partnership with him you have to actively walk with God. You can't say a prayer and have Jesus push you up the hill. You have to take his hand and walk with him. And some of you guys are struggling with sin and you're wondering, why doesn't God deliver me from this sin? What are you doing? This isn't a works-based gospel. You can't save yourself. But how are you partnering with God to overcome that sin? Have you confessed to anyone lately? Have you gone and said, hey, I struggle with this. I need your help. Pray for me. Help me. Call me. Text me. Let me know like, that you care. Have you gone to God and said, God, I am going to pray and fast until this sin is out of my life? Have you gone to the Lord with a broken heart? Yes, even maybe with tears and said, God, I'm a sinner and I repent of this sin. Please free me. So often our attitude towards sin is just, oh, God will deal with it. I mean, he died on the cross, right? What's the big deal? And we miss out on the reality that sin is wrecking our life. Some of you guys might have trials in your life right now. Maybe God has allowed a trial, just like he left those armies and those nations in the land because Israel was rebellious. Maybe you're suffering through something right now. One of the great questions that comes up is why would God allow trials in our life? Why would he leave trials in our life? I would explain it like this. God allows us to face battles so that we won't lose sight of the war. What's the war? The war has been going on since the beginning of time. It's the war for souls. It's the war of good versus evil. The big picture of the entire Bible is a king and his kingdom, God rescuing his people, bringing them back to the kingdom, and ruling with them as a family. That is the great picture of history. And so often we're not even thinking about it. We're so focused on our own life and our own sin. 
And so sometimes God leaves battles in our life to get our eyes on the war, to get our eyes on him. Because what happens when life is just perfect? When you're in a situation where you have no problems, well, often your eyes are turned from God and onto yourself, your pleasure and your sin. And when you face a trial, often your eyes open up to God. And in your pain, you remember who he is, his power and his salvation. And this reorients you and helps you see the big picture that you need to depend on God and you need to rely on him for everything in your life. Israel was chosen for a purpose, the covenant. The big picture was the salvation of mankind. They're in this land, not just because God is obsessed with land, but because he wants Jesus to come and save the world through them. So you can see why God gets so frustrated. He's trying to save the world, and they're completely letting him down. They're not helping with the plan. How many of you guys know some sixth graders? Yeah? Are they easy to work with? Imagine trying to build a house and your crew is sixth graders. Would you be frustrated? Yeah, because they'd be like hammering something one second and then like, oh my gosh, look at this new Snapchat filter. Ah, puppy dog face filter. Like just, it'd be nonstop. It'd be insane. That's what God deals with. He deals with us and it's frustrating. But here is the reality. The reality is God is patient with us And no matter how much of a spiritual sixth grader you are, no matter how much you drop the ball, God is constantly holding out his hand saying, hey, I want you to take my hand, but first you gotta take those idols out of your hand. My hand's right here, but you can't hold it unless those idols are out of it. That is what God is calling us to today. I'm gonna pray and just let this sink in. And as we go into our small groups for a time, I want you to pray this over. What is God saying to you today? How can you repent and let go of your sin and take God's hand and say, God, I want to serve you and you alone? Jesus, we love you. God, I thank you that there are verses in the Bible that show us that your anger is real because so often I don't take it seriously. So often I just want to think about your love and grace, which are so powerful. But God, your anger is a true reality. And God, I just want to apologize for angering you. I know that my sin angers you, God. I know that when my heart is not turned towards you, it angers you. Not because you hate me, but because you hate what sin is doing to my life. God, I pray for these students that you would free them from bondage to sin. Open their eyes to the reality of you. Help them to take your hand and walk with you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen.